This is In Search of the Invisible Army, a caregiver story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Havas Links. I'm Paul Eccles. In our interviews for these podcasts, we ask carers about everything from whether they got enough sleep to their ambitions for the future. Naturally, it got pretty personal at times, and there was one question in particular that raised a few smiles. Do you feel loved, Shazia? <laughs> um, yeah, but my, my mum, definitely. I think that's the most important thing. I've never been that before. That was Shazia. We heard from her in our last podcast, and you'll hear more from her a little later. Interestingly, all the carers we asked that question to said that they felt loved, but that didn't mean that they didn't feel lonely. Here's Leanne, another carer we spoke to. It's really hurtful. It's horrible. Um, I feel very lonely. My mum's there, but she's not there. In this podcast, we're going to look at the relationships around the carer, with the people that they look after, the doctors, nurses and other professionals that they deal with, and also the wider network of family and friends around them. The research in this podcast has come out of an industry white paper that Havas Link produced earlier in the year. For more information on that, go to invisible-army.com. Let's go back to the M. At the moment, I'm caring for my mother, who's um, 70 years old this year. She's suffered from schizophrenia, and she's suffered from uh, roughly 25, 26 years now. Yeah, it's ongoing. The her situation is up and down. You know, even she's not even uh, talking about days. You know, one minute she's okay, next minute she's not. So it depends on her moods and her depression, um, which is um, unpredictable. And uh, I'm I'm with her every day for seven days a week. Yeah. Leanne's a single mum in her forties, and she lives with her three daughters, all in their teens, a few minutes away from her mum. Yeah, I turn up at eight o'clock, and uh, sometimes she's settled. Then I can go home like two, three in the afternoon, or uh, if not, then I got to stay all the way, you know, to late night. Or depends, but very full on mm-hmm. every day. Leanne's also cared for a dad who died of lung cancer a few years ago, and for a grandma a bit too. Over a third of carers in the UK are sandwich carers like Leanne caring for parents whilst trying to raise children. According to Carers UK, only 12% feel that they're juggling everything well. You might notice some car noises in the background of my conversation with Leanne. When we met, Leanne didn't want to be interviewed at home. She didn't want her daughters to hear us talking. So we sat and chatted in the back of her car. Leanne and her mum moved to the UK from Vietnam when Leanne was 11. They came to join her dad, although her parents separated about a year after they arrived. And then, when Leanne was 16, her mum suddenly became unwell. Oh, gosh. It was horrible um, I from the beginning. So every time I bring my friend or the neighbour pop by, she either starts swearing at them or spatting at them. And uh, I remember one time we live in the maisonette, which is upstairs and downstairs is a corner shop. And she hearing voice saying that, can you throw all the sharp stuff downstairs, which is knives and scissors and you name it. And luckily... I don't know why a lot of people pass by, but it doesn't hit anyone. Well, the police turned up and arrested her. And then they found out she's not well, so uh, things like that. Nighttime, she opened the door and she ran out, disappeared, um, with no shoes on, or, you know, in this weather, not enough, you know, clothes on. Leanne's mum was sectioned for five months and then later discharged. A few years later, her brother was also diagnosed with schizophrenia. A serious episode led him to hear voices telling him to walk into the River Thames. He got so deep the waters were up to his chest before people calling him from the bank brought him to his senses. Leanne's brother lives with her mum. She says he manages to look after himself, although he struggled with alcohol and gambling addictions and has hassled her for money in the past. 
Leanne's cared for her mum ever since she first became ill. She went to college and worked for a short time as a hairdresser, but gave that up as her mum needed more attention and her brother wasn't able to help with this. To be honest, I lost my mum 25 years now. She's like a little child now. I had three daughters, but she's the fourth one, to be honest. She's worse than that. She's like a zombie because of medication. Mm, okay. And how, how is that for you? It's really hurtful. It's horrible. I feel very lonely. My mum's there, but she's not there. Like, we t- we're going out every single day to get a fresh air, but I can't get one sentence out of her mouth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I end up snapping at her all the time, you know, because <laughs> we went out for so many hours, uh, you know, want to be, you know, bonding, and, you know, sometimes I'm like, Mom, wake up, you know. Can you be my mom instead of I'm your, you know, I'm your mom for, for a change. I need to talk to you. I need to, you know, I need someone to talk to. Mm-hmm. See, I'm, I'm tortured between, you know, uh, like, when I'm with her, I don't want to be with her. When I'm at home, I feel guilty on by leaving her with my brother, you know. It was really sad to hear Leanne's feelings of bereavement at the decline in her relationship with her mum, particularly when combined with a sense of duty to her. As she says, she seemed very conflicted getting frustrated at her mum for not being able to be a mum and support her at a time when Leanne needed her most, and then beating herself up for feeling this way. Shifting relationship dynamics are common in care relationships. Here's Emily Holtzhausen, Director of Policy and Public Affairs at Carers UK. Most people say that the relationship changes. Some people find that the relationship strengthens and deepens and gets a lot better. Other people find that you need to renegotiate the roles that you have with the person that you're caring for. And for some, I'm afraid, relationships break down as a result of the changes that people have in their lives. Sadly, Leanne's relationship with the mother probably falls into that third category. But Floris, a carer from the Netherlands whose wife has MS, told me caring has strengthened their relationship. She is my wife and I, there is nobody else I love more than my wife. It's amazing how our love is. We we are always on, always on one line and made our relationship stronger. Sometimes she says, I love you more than I did because you are taking so much care of me. Floris has a real energy and enthusiasm for caring, and we'll hear more from him later. The renegotiating of roles that Emily mentioned comes very sharply into focus amongst those caring for the parents. We've heard Leanne describe her mum as an extra daughter. Here's Shazia again, who we heard from in the opening. She cares for her mum, who has Parkinson's. It can be... Because <laughs> it's sort of a bit of a role reverse a lot of times, it can get a little difficult at times. And it's a bit weird for me telling her what to do. If she hates using a wheelchair, her wheelchair's over there. And she won't let me take it anywhere. So she's got a hospital appointment later on today, so I have to always find one in the hospital just lying around because she refuses... <laughs> She, she hates being seen in a wheelchair. Um, so stuff like that is a bit weird telling your mum off or just telling her what to do, I think. But it sort of has a bit of comedy factor as well. <laughs> <laughs> and has your relationship with her changed in the period that your mum's been on well? Yeah, um, I think I, I've had to be more independent and grow up quite a bit quickly much quicker than I probably want, would have wanted to. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's hard. 
it's just something that I would never have imagined because being an uh, being an only child as well we were very close to begin with but it's sort of stuff when she says that oh I'd, sometimes I just wish I, I'd die so that you'd have a better life that sort of stuff like really hurts me um, but I don't let her know that because I can also see how frustrated she might be and how horrible it would be for like her to rely on someone because she was so independent before all this happened. You can see the complex tensions that caring has created for Shazia and her mother. The uneasiness of a rearranged hierarchy, the sense of guilt and burden her mother feels. Looking back at Leanne, the breakdown in her relationship with her mum is perhaps as much to do with the barrier she feels her mum's schizophrenia creates between them as it is to do with their care relationship. But for Lena and her husband Michele, who has the lung disease COPD, it's the cat and mouse relationship they've adopted. Here's Lena, who lives near Milan in Italy, with her daughter-in-law acting as translator. She used to be his wife, and now she feels she's his mother. She constantly rebukes Michele for not taking his drugs or not uh, wanting to, to get dressed, to get washed. So their relationship is like a mother to a child. Lena told me the onus is on her to take care of Michele, to help him with his oxygen therapy, personal care and taking his meds. She says Michele is stubborn and uncooperative. He bats her attentions away and gets angry, but refuses to wash himself or do anything to control his deteriorating condition himself. It's this tension, rather than Michele's care needs as such, that seem to be putting the real strain on their relationship and on Lena. In comparison, another carer who shared her story with us, Karen, described working as a team with a partner event. Both take active roles in things like remembering medication. Karen said their relationship is as strong as ever and Yvette's condition is well managed. Studies show that more balanced care partnerships like Karen's and Yvette's can lead to better health in the person needing care. One in particular suggests that this is because it encourages the patient to take a more active role in taking care of themselves. Even the language used can be important. Think for a minute about the labels carer or caregiver and care recipient. Don't they straight away imply something that's one way? that one person is doing all the caring and that the other person is passive and powerless. That's what Kate Swaffer thinks. She and her husband Peter don't like any of those terms. Kate's an acclaimed author, activist and academic, amongst many other things. She also has younger onset dementia. Kate was diagnosed when she was just 49. She was as active as ever and yet a doctor's approach was to say, there's nothing we can do. This was followed by service providers advising her to get her end-of-life affairs in order, to get acquainted with aged care to give up work and study, and to prepare for death. You know, the day I got diagnosed, I'd squeezed in a university lecture, taken the kids to school, been to work, gone to my appointment, gone back to work. Why was it even logical the next day I couldn't do anything? And I eventually termed that prescribed disengagement and even trademarked the term because that disempowered me further, took away my hope, um, took away any sense of a future. A big part of what Kate describes as her prescribed disengagement was that her husband Peter was also told he would soon need to quit his job and care for Kate full time. So it actually taught him to just take over, which further disempowered my ability to function. Kate and Peter followed this plan initially, but eventually realised it was an unhealthy approach. It disregarded Kate's fierce independence and they felt it totally went against her best interests. They also felt that calling Peter Kate's carer denigrated all other aspects of their relationship, something I think many people feel. Peter had cared for Kate a long time before she had dementia. He supports her now as he did then, as she also supports him. 
So Kate came up with an alternative way to frame her relationship with Peter. She calls him her backup brain. And we kind of liken it to the backup in your computer. So, you know, all young people have grown up with computers. Hopefully you back up your work regularly just in case the computer crashes. Now, that's kind of how my husband supports me. The only time he would step in is if it was dangerous at this stage. So he waits for me to ask for support rather than taking over from me. And, you know, what we see around the world generally is that most care partners just take over from day one. And that's actually really unhelpful. Kate says that carers do this out of love and because they're told that they will need to. She also told me that the simple term backup brain or BUB has helped set guidelines for him, Peter, that maintain a healthy balance. It enables him to stand alongside rather than care for Kate and helps Kate maintain her independence, which is integral to her thriving as she lives with dementia. Every relationship is different and backup brain might not work for all. But if you think about the sense of balance that the term care partner rather than caregiver implies, you really get a sense for the power of the language we use in describing caring roles. Kate is chair, CEO and co-founder of Dementia Alliance International. You can read more about backup brain and Kate's perspective on dementia in her book What the Hell Happened to My Brain? Living Beyond Dementia. For details of this and the many other amazing things Kate does, head to kateswafford.com. As a carer, you'd think the healthcare professionals you come into contact with through caring will be key in helping you find your way. But when I chatted to Leanne, she didn't have a lot of good things to say about her mum's doctors and psychiatrists. In fact, she referred to appointments as a waste of time. Such disconnects were obviously not ideal, especially as it sounded like Leanne needed more support. Unfortunately, they're common, as was apparent from a conversation with another carer, Sue. Sue's husband Anthony is a form of young-onset dementia called PCA. His symptoms are fairly advanced. He's visually impaired, immobile, and totally reliant upon his wife. With the help of professional carers, Sue takes care of everything from personal care to physio. And yet in spite of this, she says she's met a lot of resistance from his healthcare professionals. I think they were very difficult from getting the diagnosis to getting people to sort of listen to us and know that I had the experience. But to begin with, I think I was just purely seen as the carer who's maybe making a fuss. And so I felt they weren't really taking on board my experiences. And I felt in some meetings that I have known maybe more than they do. Um, We did get to a crisis point where things were very bad. I felt I had to fight and I still am fighting for every single thing. Emily Holtzhausen from Carers UK says that the problem is that professionals are often too patient-focused. We've still got a long way to go before we're at a, at a point where carers are feeding back to us that actually, yes, they are involved. Because if you go to see a health professional, they are quite rightly very focused on the person in front of them, the patient. And they don't always ask the carer how they're doing or how they're managing. They sort of assume that care and support will happen without necessarily including them. Those we spoke to that had found good relationships with healthcare professionals said that they were worth their weight in gold. Shazia had mixed experiences, but here she is talking about her mum's current neurologist and neuropsychiatrist. They've been amazing. Like One of them rang me up on A-level results today and he was like, if you've not got the grades, then I, I'll like fight for you to make sure that you get into my first choice university. And they've always like really involved me in the care and asked my mum like how she's doing, how I'm finding her, if I've noticed any changes since they've last made changes to her medication 
So it's, it's nice to know that they acknowledge my role and actually take on board any feedback. I don't know what we'd do without those two consultants, really. It's not rocket science to suggest that relationships like this one benefit everyone. We talked in the first podcast about the need to identify carers and connect them to information and support. Healthcare professionals are really well placed to do this. Here's Dr Sarah Jarvis, a GP and clinical director of patient.co.uk. It's absolutely essential that a GP knows if somebody needs caring for, who is looking after them and whether their needs have been met. Because only by doing that can we work together as a team to ensure the best outcomes from the patient and, of course, to look after the physical and mental well-being of the carer. For healthcare professionals, carers offer a window into the world of a patient. Leanne, for instance, is with a mum at least eight hours a day, feeding her, giving her medication, observing her behaviours and symptoms. Emily Holtzhausen told me that the time carers spend with the people they look after can make them a huge source of knowledge. They describe themselves as becoming experts in care over time. Some people with very rare conditions, sometimes the carer is the person that knows more than the professional sitting in front of them, and they learn a lot over time. One such expert in care is Beth Britton. Beth's a respected campaigner, consultant and writer who champions dementia care issues. She cared for a father who had vascular dementia for the last 19 years of his life. I think the position we found ourselves in was having to find practical solutions to the problems that my dad had. So we spent a lot of time with him, we tried a lot of different things and we discovered things that really worked. So for example, really struggled with drinks and with thickening drinks. My dad loved a cup of tea but you try thickening tea, it's a nightmare. But thickening smoothies works brilliantly and when a person can't swallow very well and their nutritional intake is declining, that is at least one way of getting some fresh fruit into them. And the, the staff had never even thought of that. So I think there is a lot that carers can contribute and I think that goes back to the point about needing to actually involve that carer expertise because it's absolutely invaluable. As Beth says, bringing on board this kind of unparalleled insight can only benefit the patient and the studies that support this. The presence of a carer can mean that patients are five times more likely to complete a self-management programme, that they're less likely to relapse and more likely to take medications and to stick to healthy living habits. Now, clinical settings like hospitals aren't always the most welcoming place for carers. It's somewhere they can end up feeling forgotten or excluded. And that was the experience of author, journalist and co-founder of John's campaign, Nicky Gerrard. Like Beth's father, Nicky's dad John had dementia. He lived well with it for 10 years, tending his garden and teasing his grandchildren, until leg ulcers resulted in a five-week stint in hospital. Here's Nicky talking at the Royal Society of Medicine earlier this year. That hospital had restrictive visiting hours and then an outbreak of norovirus, which led to a virtual lockdown, so that for days on end, he saw none of us. He had no visitors at all. Courteously and uncomplainingly, my father went off a cliff. He went in well. He came out skeletal, incontinent, utterly immobile. He couldn't put one foot in front of another. He couldn't even lift a fork to his mouth. Hospital, we learned, is a very hazardous place for those who are frail, confused, scared, and whose grip on life is precarious. One in three beds are occupied by people with dementia, and they need a constant and empathetic presence and attention that nurses and doctors simply cannot provide. We understood too late that he needed people who would help him eat, drink, move around. Without them, he very quickly lost his capacity. We need to talk to him, to read to him, to hold his hand, to look into his eyes, to stroke his hair, to tell him that we loved him. 
Nicky's father passed away nine months after he left hospital. One third of people with dementia who go into hospital for an unrelated condition never even return home. Nicky saw the senselessness in this and in her father's decline and saw a need for change. So with her friend Julia Jones, whose mum also has dementia, Nicky set up John's campaign. The power of the campaign lies in its simplicity. It says that carers of people with dementia should have the same right to accompany them in hospital or any other institution as the parents of sick children. Just as it's almost imaginable now that parents were ever kept away, so we believe that in a few years' time it will be unimaginable that carers are. Since the campaign began, over 1,000 institutions have pledged support, from hospitals to social housing organisations. The campaign guides these institutions to introduce a range of practices that actively support carers. Things like unrestricted visiting hours so that carers can be there as much as they wish, and discounts on food and parking. Some have introduced carers' charters, a code of conduct that guides staff on how to interact with carers and lets carers know what they can expect, whilst others even have Z-beds so that carers can stay the night with their loved one. But what's the effect of all this? And does it actually improve things at all? There is robust evidence that where carers are welcome, there are fewer falls, less malnutrition and dehydration, that stays in hospitals are shorter, that readmission is less likely. It's good for doctors, nurses, carers and above all for patients. Besides the benefits Nikki listed, institutions involved in the campaign have also reported fewer complaints, a sure sign of better communication between staff, patients and carers, and that patients are more at ease and less agitated, which is key when you're talking about dementia. What the impact of John's campaign really typifies is the huge benefits that come when professionals and institutions broaden their perspective. From one that focuses on the patient to one that takes in all aspects that make up a person's care, including, of course, carers. Here's Anil Patil, founder of Carers Worldwide. We as a professionals, we never looked at the bigger picture. Always we are looking at person with disability or elderly or person with HIV AIDS or mental health issues, but never from the carer's point of view. If you want to see the change in the person who need the care, first provide the support and attention to the caregiver. Then almost 50 to 60 percent of your issues are resolved. You can find out more about the difference John's campaign is making at johnscampaign.org.uk. There's a lot of really great information and resources on there, including the reported results of the campaign's impact. A full version of Nikki Gerald's talk is available on the Royal Society of Medicine's website, rsm.ac.uk. Just search John's campaign in the site's search function. We'll return to Leanne now, who, like many carers, felt that a caring role cut her off from other people. My mum is, is my first priority now. I know my kids supposed to be first. So um, every time I went back home to my house, I feel exhausted, even though I don't do any physical stuff. Mm-hmm. But my brain is so heavy, and yeah. I just go in my room and shut the door, and, and, and I want to be on my own, which is unfair for my children, really, because they the age like they want to communicate with their mum, because they, they have no one, just me only. So you, do you think that looking after your mum has an effect Big, on impact with my yeah for my children so every time my 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 kids turn up you know come up to me and ask for something i either i give very simple advice or i shove them away you know i I didn't provide for 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 them at all i used to have so many friends so they keep you know calling you you know leanne would you like to go out and they say no sorry uh, maybe next time and they keep you repeat that all the time then they say so i'm i'm on my own now um they you know trip apart now so it's no social life at all. 
According to Carers UK, 8 in 10 carers have felt lonely or isolated as a result of their caring role. That notion of Leanne closing the door to her children is striking, and particularly telling of her difficulties in balancing her roles as a parent and a carer. At times she seems to feel guilty that she wasn't able to fill either properly. Over half of sandwich carers like Leanne worry about the effect caring has on their children. Leanne's comment also illustrates the way that caring can lock carers away, not only physically but mentally. I find not just me but all the carers, we find it very lonely. We've got shorter people to talk to. I can't talk to my, my girls. Of course they, they, they know that I'm caring for their grandma and their uncle. I can't share with them because I don't want no more burden on, on you know, um, it's not fair for them to, to know too much about it. There was a sense amongst Leanne and the other carers we spoke to that it was not just the intensity of their duties that isolated them. They also felt that the uniqueness of their experiences stood them apart from other people. One time, like, I, I, I'd be invited with my um, friend who's ex-carer and he's, he's a writer and he's got a lot of friends, you know, doctors, a lawyer, and he invited me to come for his birthday um, party. Oh, my God, I turn up and I feel so embarrassed. You know, they're all lawyers, doctors, and you name it, and then suddenly me. So I sat there all night, feel so uncomfortable. Leanne's feelings of shame around her caring role ties in with the themes of the first podcast, about the lack of recognition for carers. Other carers we spoke to were worried about stigma and judgment too. These kinds of fears are often bound up in a more general feeling that other people just didn't understand what carers were going through. That sharing stuff would only serve to unfairly burden people or that people didn't make the effort to reach out because they didn't appreciate the strains that carers were under. A desire to feel understood is perhaps a basic part of the human condition. And whereas Leanne felt unable to reach out due to her lack of understanding, Floris had the opposite experience. Floris, you may remember, we heard from much earlier in the podcast. He cares for his wife, who has MS. He and his wife had a great network of people around them, all lending their hands to help lighten the load. And what Floris said was integral to this network was a feeling that everyone understood he and his wife's situation. They all really mean a lot to me. But the most important thing is that they mean a lot to me in a different way. The relationship with uh, the healthcare professionals of my wife um, is really good. My family is my family and we talk with each other like families do. My father, for example, uh, was a healthcare professional, so he really understands what NS means. And I talk with uh, uh, my community and like my boss uh, or HR department. They understand um, what my wife's going through and, and they are trying to help me in a way that I can still do my job and be able to care for my wife and for my family. So every group helps me in his own way. Floris talked of the support he received from other carers, and that's something he and Leanne had in common. Leanne goes to a support group at a local Buddhist centre, and one run by Rethink, the mental health charity. Yeah, I, I attend once a week at Buddhist centre. They're running once a, day, um, once a week for carer every Tuesday um, to turn up to meditate and relaxation, you know, like um, to meditate, and then we had a chance to sit around and talk to each other as a carer you know, sharing our experience, what we've been through during the week. And we had, I'm lucky to have to meet a, a good bunch of people and they so, support me, um, you know, mentally and, you know, um, I can share with them everything that I don't, don't have to hide. When I talk to them, 
I feel like they understand me completely because they care as well. They seem, you know, they are the same situation as me. So they understand every single word that I've been saying, saying to them. So those places like Reefing and Buddhist Center, you know, um, saving my life, you know. So I keep turning up for the last 10 years now. For some of the carers we spoke to, joining a support group had been a real turning point. They positively lit up at the mention of it. It was here that they felt truly understood. This seemed to be a universal amongst carers, in fact. Yet people have quite different needs and expectations of support. Some prefer to connect with carers who share an experience of the same disease or condition, partly for emotional support and solidarity, but also because of the possibility of sharing practical advice. Who better to help you solve your problems than someone who's been through it all already? Carers also seek support by age, gender, and in Leanne's case, faith. Buddhism was a huge part of Leanne's life. Besides going to the Buddhist centre, watching YouTube videos of Buddhist meditations was one of her few coping strategies. It's another indicator of the importance of culture, something that our conversations with carers and support workers indicated isn't always catered for as well as it might be. And of course, some go online to mix with other carers. Being able to access forums and social media at a time and in a way that works for them is a lifeline for those hard-pressed or living in remote locations. Despite modern communication technologies, access to peer support really varies around the world. The UK is quite a healthy offering, both online and offline, compared to some of the other countries we looked at. Anil Patil of Carers Worldwide says that the provision in the countries he works in, India, Bangladesh and Nepal, is really poor. But where Carers Worldwide have intervened to introduce support groups, the effects have been just as transformative as anywhere else. Here's Anil to close out this episode. One adult carer, she had three disabled children, muscular dystrophy, and husband died uh, three years ago, and it was affecting her health. She was not having proper sleep, not able to take nutritious food, simple nutritious food, unable to go to work, and uh, she was almost attempted three times to commit suicide. And our carers group came to know about her situation. One of the carers who went to her house and talked to her, spent an hour. We know your situation. Why can't you give just one hour time to us? Come on so-and-so date and meet with other carers in a similar situation. So with great difficulty, she was able to join the group and uh, attend the meeting. And every carers were able to share their experiences and uh, how, what the situation was, what the situation is now and she found very moving. At the end of that meeting, she was saying, I found a purpose in my life. I know there is a great difficulty moving forward, but these are my family, these are my friends. If I need, I can call upon them. And now she became a leader of that group, the one who wanted to commit the suicide. Can you put the value on that? This podcast was brought to you by Havas Links. For more information about the things you've heard or to read the white paper, go to invisible-army.com. In the next episode, we'll look at how caring affects how carers feel about themselves. So it has given me some strength and some known friends and qualities and things that have come up that I would not have known I had. So that one, that one is something that has, has made me grow. I'd like to thank you for listening. And I'd like to thank all of our contributors for their participation and time, especially Shazia, Leanne, Martha, Floris, Lena, Sue, and the other carers and support workers we interviewed throughout our research. 
An extra note of thanks goes to the Royal Society of Medicine and Nicky Gerrard from John's Campaign for granting us permission to use extracts from Nicky's talk. This podcast was written and narrated by me, Paul Eccles, with editorial support from Caroline Crampton and production and editing by Dan Lord in the Studio 6 team at Havas Links. Thanks also go to Mark Duffy and Soap Studio for their continued support. Thank you.